The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 124 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own, and that my present or past employers. I've never disclosed any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, remind our listeners you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap tonight's show and get some other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, last week we had the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Black Ops Partners Corporation, Mr. Casey Fleming, appear on episode number 123, and he came on the show to speak directly to the new developments concerning our nation's counterintelligence apparatus and the impact that some of these new decisions are having on the cybersecurity industry. So... I think this, this topic isn't spoken about enough. I don't think uh, people are getting the message out uh, enough. And Casey is someone who does that very, very well, I think. I love having him on the show because what I think what he says and, and the things that he talks about in terms of how the United States is, has been attacked over the last couple of decades is something that we really need to talk about. We really need to make sure that this kind of thing stops. We need to protect ourselves. We need to protect our children's futures. And, uh, and I think the more that we can get the message out, the better that people understand. And I think once they start understanding, the government will start to do more to stop this. But this is a, a topic that uh, seemingly gets no attention for some reason. Um, it's very rare. And I think it's one of the biggest problems that we have. Um, I mean, no one's talking about the one country who has done enormous damage to our national security and who continues to do so, by the way as well as making sure other countries don't follow suit to use the same, same successful template, seemingly. So, Mr. Fleming breaks down why the new counterintelligence strategy for the next two years, from 2020 to 2022, is so important. It's so very important, uh, and it's also very interesting, too. Um, so, I think we need to talk about how these new developments will affect our nation's cybersecurity posture. I also took the opportunity to ask Mr. Fleming about how the bad guys are using emerging technologies to attack our infrastructure and what this means to both the commercial and academic industries in the United States. So it was interesting what he had to say about academia and how they're involved in this. And it might not seem apparent to some people when you think about it. You know, what does academia have to do with, with, with critical infrastructure and, uh, and our cyber uh, defense and death posture? But definitely... 
I think, obviously, once you listen to what Casey has to say, you understand that academia has a big role to play in this. And he also provided analysis on Secretary of Defense Mark Esper's recent comments during his trip to Europe, as well as NCSC Director William Evanina's recent public remarks on the Chinese theft of intellectual property from the United States. So if you care about your country and you don't want your futures to be stolen by a communist state, this is a great show to get to listen to and, and get educated on what's been happening over the last few decades and as well as what we need to do to, to stop it. So that's Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Black Ops Partner Corporation, Casey Fleming, on last week's episode. That's episode number 124, I'm sorry, 123 of Task Force 7 Radio. We're in episode 124 this evening. All right, so if you're listening to live on Voice America right now, or maybe you just sent the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. So the, the, the site's come along really well. We've made some more uh, uh, progression over the last couple of weeks. Uh, all the episodes are, are, are still up there. Uh, Casey's episode is up there. So, you know, take a look at it and uh, check it out. Uh, we're going to be adding a lot more information to uh, the site. Pretty soon you'll be able to buy some TF7 radio gear and some, maybe some TF7 gear as well. Uh, so you'll have uh, that grove to get on if you want, if you like that kind of stuff and T-shirts and hats and, and mugs and things like that. So we're, we're pretty excited about what we're, what we're doing with the website. Hopefully we'll be able to sign you up, uh, pre-register for the TF7 network soon. And just a lot going on. We're on at least a dozen playback mediums right now. We've made it super simple for you to find them all. Just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage, and you will see your entire selection of playback mediums at your fingertips. So this way you can subscribe to the playback medium of your choice that you like the most, and uh, this way you can, you're more comfortable with where you listen to. So you get your TF7 library right up on whatever you listen to, whether that's Spotify, iHeartRadio, whatever it is. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe, especially when you subscribe right from the TF7 Radio site. So we have yet another wonderful guest joining us this evening. Uh, one of the most influential cybersecurity professionals in all the United Kingdom is going to be right here with us. Jane Franklin is going to be joining the elite list of Task Force 7 radio guests to appear on the show. So Jane is an award-winning entrepreneur. She's a best-selling author, and she's a change agent. She's somebody that comes in and helps um, focus on transformational change. Uh, she focuses on business strategy as well, and she's a world authority on attracting and retaining women in cybersecurity. So we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight again. And she's been named as a top 20 global influencer the third most influential person in cybersecurity in the UK, a top 100 in UK tech, and a LinkedIn top voices. So as you can see, she's very influential. As the CEO of Cybersecurity Capital, she is solving the problem of getting more women into cybersecurity. She believes that a failure to attract and retain women in cybersecurity is making us less safe, and that only by addressing this will we be more productive, innovative, and happier, which you know, I, I can't agree more. I mean, you can't fight a battle uh, when, when half the team shows up, right? We need the, we need the other half. And uh, we need to find out a way to get more women into cybersecurity, into tech spaces, into STEM careers. So she has over 22 years of experience in cybersecurity, 
She's built and sold her own global hacking firm, a penetration testing firm, served in executive positions at renowned cybersecurity consultancies, and contributed to leading accreditation organizations. In addition to managing her own company and parenting three children, she is an awards judge and board advisor. She does it all, right? And she's an author. She's authored many different articles. She's regularly featured in the media, and she is a very much sought-after keynote speaker. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the show award-winning entrepreneur and best-selling author, Mrs. Jane Franklin. Jane, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Hi, George. Hi. I'm so happy to be here and to be doing this with you. <laughs> We're so happy to have you. Thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your journey into the industry and what attracted you to it? Yeah, well, I came into the industry in 1997, and my background actually was, was not technical at all. I think like many people in the industry, certainly of my age, I came from an arts background, so I have a degree in textile design, so I was a designer. So for me, it really was a kind of evolution of, of my career, of my journey, so changing once again. So I had this very successful career as a designer, then changed my career in order to kind of feed my family, actually, because I was a single parent. And I, I moved into sales, which was a domain that I never thought I would go into. And then I went straight into building uh, building a company, and it was it had a technical focus. And because I didn't really know anything about technology, at that time, there were only two areas that interested me. One was AI, and the other was security. And because AI was really, really new in, in 1997, it really wasn't feasible, but security was. And to me, knowing very little about it, I just thought it sounded really interesting, really cool. And I kind of, I'm smiling when I say this, but I kind of thought it sounded a little bit like James Bond. And although it's nothing like, <laughs> nothing like James Bond at all, it's so embarrassing to say that, but it is, it, it was the case. But so that's kind of how I started. So I went straight in, in my 20s, building a company straight into entrepreneurship and working on, on security. So selling things like firewalls, content management solutions. We did also do um, high availability service and things like that, but the lead was always security. And then the company evolved and within kind of instinctively, actually, I knew to niche down. So within a few years, you know, we had transformed and we focused on penetration testing or ethical hacking, you know, as it's quite commonly known now. So that was how I built you know, my security company and really how my journey began. And I owned that consultancy. It was a very, very well-respected um, penetration testing consultancy that was global. I owned that for 16 years. So that's how I came into the industry. And I've yet to meet anyone who kind of started really from nothing and then did something like that. So it's quite an unusual routine. That's absolutely amazing. I mean, you know, today it's not you know, atypical for someone to come out of college and go right into entrepreneurship and try to open a business. It's not as uncommon, but yes, back yes. in that, that time, that period, I think it was, and that showed that you had a tremendous amount of courage to do something like that. Did you ever think about starting a, you know, a, a, a typical career? I don't know how to describe it. You know, working for corporate and working way up the ladder first, or you yes. just totally disregarded that out of the gate? I did, I did, and it's a great question, actually, because when I decided to, to go full out to creating a business, I spent you know, a good time actually 
really questioning it. You know, I had pressure on the people I was working for to stay with them because I had a career. I had a very, very good career ahead of me if I stayed with that company and, you know, what moving into management and directorship and, and everything like that. And I was doing really well with that company. So for me to kind of throw that in, to start again, to start with nothing because the penetration testing company that I um, had was organically grown. So it was very much a case of if we, if my business partner and I didn't make money within the first two months, because also we needed cash flow as well, the cash to come in, um, then we were, we were screwed. So it really was, it was hard to walk away from that, but I knew that it was, I knew that it was the right thing to do. And quite frankly, although I had a family, I had a, a, a son when you're in your twenties, you know you're kind of you're kind of a little bit invincible, or that's what you think you are. You just go for it. And my appetite for risk is is measured, um, but it's probably higher than than a lot of people. So I just I just went for it, and it was it was very much a case of this is happening. Don't look back, look, look forward, and just keep your eye on the target on the on the objective, which was to build this um, global company to sell it for millions and to go off and do, you know, what I wanted to do, which at that time was actually my art, you know, my, my passion. Um, wow. I mean, yeah. so much respect for you. I mean, that's just so amazing. I mean, at that age to be able to build a company like that, I mean, I, I, most people can't do it in any period in their life, let alone then. Did you have yeah. any formal training or education in, in this field? I mean, did you? No, train not yourself? at all. So I, I learned on the job. So I read a lot. Um, I read books and I, made loads of mistakes and still do so it's just like there's a saying isn't there fell fast fell fell forward you know <laughs> that's what I did and continue to do so failures are just learning lessons as far as I'm concerned so it's it's very much a case of like that won't that didn't pick yourself up from the ground dust yourself off you know with <laughs> it for the dirt and, and get on with it try something different and so inspirational. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. I, I was quite instinctive as well and and very courageous and fearless. And I have a really high standard. So for me, my commitment is always to my clients, to always make them look good, to always do, do my best, to try and be as kind as I can to myself because invariably some things, you know, just don't, don't come off. But I, I genuinely care about the people that I work with and the quality of the work that I do. And I think I'm quite well known for that. So... So for me, I did lean on books and I would always read business books and, and things like that. And I was really lucky at one point when my business went through, that particular business anyway, a really difficult period. Um, it was that not that long after the dot-com boom bubble burst and a lot of companies were taken out um, or had their funding pulled and my company was, was left quite exposed. And that was a time when, you know, I really learned that the kind of um, phrase of cash is king. And so it doesn't matter, you know, how much is, how, how many orders you've got, you know, it really does amount to how much cash have you got in your bank? Because if you've got suppliers to pay, it, you know, that's, that's, you've got to pay them, you know, you're out of business. And so, so I was really lucky at that point to have a great mentor who I didn't go looking for, but he saw the potential, I think, in me and the business and took me under his wing. And he was very um, adept at turning around companies. He had a history of doing that. And he happened to be, you know, my, my company's landlord. So he taught me so much. And I'm so incredibly grateful to him for that. So, yes, that's that kind of how, how I learned. And 
for me also, I'm, I'm very much a big believer in investment. So invest, investing in myself, in my learning capability, um, aligning myself with people who are better than me um, and, um, and that continuous path to learning so, so that I can do better and I can stay on my game as well because everything's evolving. So nowadays, uh, I'll use all sorts of, of tools, read, um, read, consume videos, listen to podcasts, um, and yeah, all things like that. And also, I, I have coaches who, who I engage so that they can help me to be better at my game. Well, it really is re- inspirational. I'll tell you, I think it resonates with people of all ages. And whatever, whatever part of your career you're in, um, I think this is like really good to hear because I know it's resonating with me. We've been on the, 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 the show now for about seven minutes and I'm already all jacked up, right? So you got me thinking about all the things I'm going to do today, right? And so, yeah, it's crazy. But um, so you're, you're a leading advocate for women yes. and you've written a book about why a failure to attract and retain women in, in cybersecurity is making us less safe. Is, is it called I insecurity or insecurity? Insecurity. Insecurity. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, what inspired you to write this book? Well, the book happened as an accident, and I'm forever telling this story, actually. And some people I've had, you know, one of my friends says, don't say it happened as an accident, but it, it really did happen as an accident. So <laughs> I, uh, I always knew that I would write a book, and I had a different book in mind, actually. But what happened was I'd read a report by ISC Squared on the, the state of the work force, you know, when it came to, to women. And I was really surprised at the low numbers of women in the workforce, especially having been in the industry for so long. When I was in the industry right at the very beginning, there were there were few women you'd encounter. I remember meeting a female client and kind of going, oh my God, it's amazing. You know, it's, you know, it's a female. You know, literally, it was just so unusual. And then you kind of became used to it. And I was very happy working with guys. I love working with men and women. It's absolutely cool. But um, when I read this report, I was really shocked because I thought there were more women in the industry because I, I was working and encountering more. And so and what worried me also was the declining trend. So we were kind of stagnating. I say we as, as women. So the numbers were stagnating. So year after year, we were, as women, kind of hovering around that 10 or 11% at, from having fallen from 18%, I think, in 2009. And that worried me. And it worried me so much that I felt compelled to write a blog. So one weekend I did this. Uh, and thought, oh my God, I'm going to get crucified for what I've written. But you know, it's what I've experienced. It's it's no one can take that away from me. So just be brave. Press that button on LinkedIn. Go walk the dog, <laughs> and um, yeah, and come back. And uh, and that's what I did. And I just thought, oh my God, came back, and the comments started coming in, and and people, it was resounding um, with with my audience and. From that, you know, I was invited. I was already quite writing quite a lot anyway, so I was invited to write more for magazines. And then over Christmas time, I didn't have my kids for about a week and a half, and I just thought, let me let me add more value. Let me increase this value. Let me put it into a, a report, um, and then I can get that out as a as a report or guide. And by this stage, it was about 15,000 words. And I, and I thought, actually, if I go and do interviews, then it can be even more useful, you know, to what I've written now and all the guides I've put together because I'd, I'd 
kind of put about five resources together. So what you should read, what events you should go to, um, and, and so forth. And, and actually it wasn't just for women at, at that point. It was also bringing in just us as a community. Because I'm very much about us um, honoring the women only, but also about us evolving together as men and women, because that's just you know, how we do it. So, you know, how we, how we evolve, how we progress. And also it's much more fun. Um, so I did, I, I thought if I do these interviews, I can add more value. Maybe I could turn it into a book because right now it's at 15,000 words. So I asked a publisher who I knew, who I'd kind of worked with, but not published with. And, sh- and I said, look, this has nothing to do with my business at all. Because usually a book would be part of the product ecosystem. And um, she said, look, you'd be crazy not to do this. So I thought, let me test it with on LinkedIn, see if people want it. Did that. People came back. So all the signals were good. And I still thought, okay, right, fine. I'm not going to invest a shed load of my time because time is money um, in this unless they really want it. So what I did was I very quickly, and it was pretty, I kind of think it was a bit ghetto. It was a bit like a ghetto video, actually. Um, But I put this kind of rough, raw and ready, but very kind of like passionate, um, compelling video together that I just did on on my MacBook. So no like high quality film crew or anything like that. It was just like, I, you know, it wasn't like pretty much I want your money, but it was, um, you know, put your money down. So I'm hearing that you want this. This is what I'm going to do. You've seen the quality of my work. Um, You know who I am. If you want me to do this book, if you want me to write it, show me your money. And so I did a 30-day Kickstarter campaign and raised the money within five or six days, which was great. And then I continued, I, I, I continued with it and continued actually going out and pitching to corporates because uh, they've got far more money. Um, but, it's, but essentially, it was a, a community. The, the book I'm so proud of, because one, I know that it's working and really helping women and transforming their lives. I know it's helping leaders, which is why I kind of read it, so that they understood and, and were much much more aware. Um, but but it, was, it, was, it came about because of the community. It didn't come about for any other reason. The community... <clears throat> the community breathed life into it and and really the community has breathed life into a lot of the work that i i I have done since so this was very much a community driven project so in writing the book what Mm. what benefit you discover from a gender diverse gender diverse workforce so how did that come about yeah so, so the book really, I thought I could write it really quick because I'm a woman, I've worked in the industry for so long, um, and I, I, I can write quite quickly when I set my mind to it, you know, if I'm in the flow. But actually, it took about two years, you know, so I did a lot of interviews. Wow. Yeah, exactly. I had a load of research to do. I absolutely knew nothing, really. If I, I, I would say I knew a little bit. I didn't really know anything. So the book was a research project, really. So I had to do a lot of, I mean, there's something like over 200 links or, you know, data, you know, points in the book. So everything is very much story, story-based, story but everything that I write is backed up with data. And you can go and search it out. You can read the links. And I had to trawl through 
loads of links I had to trawl through, loads of white papers, some of them were academic, some might have been 90 pages, in order to really learn about, you know, what, you know, what the situation is, um, and to learn much more about gender, diversity, and, and inclusion. So kind of looking at what other industries have done, what's worked, what's not, what's going on in our industry, and then really uncover some issues that I think really we've you know, we, we've been unaware of. So that, uh, and, you know, and since the book, you know, more, more are coming to light, but I was very open to, and this is how I work anyway, very open to what I was going to discover, um, you know, from, from writing this. So some things, sorry, George. No, go ahead. I didn't say Some, some things that I discovered through writing the book, certainly I didn't, I didn't realize how alone women felt. I really didn't. And this is one thing that where the book has helped. Women who read the book, by and large, say any one of those stories that you've written about um, could have been about me. You know, so um, the guys well, it resonates who resonates with a lot of people. Exactly, exactly. Um, and the guys who read it kind of say to me, um, is this really the case? <laughs> and it mm. kind of makes us women laugh because it's just like, yeah, this is, this is our world. This is what we've got to nav- navigate through. And it is a very positive book. And I have pulled men's stories in as well and shown things from both viewpoints. Um, so it's, it is very in- inclusive, very easy to, to read. The older women who read it typically say to me, I can't read that book at night, Jane, because I get so angry. And um, mm. they get angry at the situation because none of us, we just want to get on and do our work. So none of us want to be, you know, going through, going through all of this, but we have to, you know, we have to face it in order to be able to understand it and then find out how to, how to address it. Mm. So it's kind of bringing a lot of things to like, like one women do feel alone. They feel isolated um, they don't feel, they're, they're tired, they're burnt out. A lot of the issues that I see actually with women, a lot of the leaders in, in the industry are going through as well. So stress, burnout, um, they're tired of the fight. Um, they just want to get on and, and do their, their work. So the rules of the game aren't the same for women as, as they are for, for men. And that's not men's fault. It is a fault of the system. So that's what we need to, to change. We, we need to change the system in order to, to improve things. And we have to get more women into the workforce because, you know, when it comes to security, we know from business anyway, when we get more women in to the workforce and particularly in positions of, of leadership, then profits increase. You know, we stay on budget much more compared to homogenous teams. Um, there's more diversity. We give more to charities. We buy locally and, and things like that. When women are empowered, um, uh, countries are more, more stable. Sunny empowered economically. Countries aren't more stable. They're more peaceful. Uh, but when we look at security, the interesting bit for me is that women see risk in a different way to, to men. Women are different to men and are different to women. And it's great that we are. It's brilliant that we are uh, because women do see risk in a different way. And you know, Jane, it's, it's, interesting. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, but it, it's interesting because we had, we had a guest on the show. You know, we, we, we talk about this topic a fair amount here. And, you know, as men, you know, we try to get out to our audience. You know, what are the one things that, what's the one thing we can do 
has been to make it easier to get women into cyber. And, and when we had members on the show, we said, you know, we could just stop being jerks, right? <laughs> At conferences, after hours, yeah. right? Let's just make it more inviting and make it more of a welcoming place for women to be. Absolutely. Right? Throw out the welcome mat. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the real implications for organizations? And you mentioned countries even. Yeah. If we don't attract more women into cybersecurity, what happens? Yeah. Well, two things. One, from a business perspective, you're not going to make as much money because um, <laughs> women, are, women are good for business. Strategically, right. it's a great biz- decision to make. Um, just like I said, we're, we're good for profits. We stay on budget much more. We're thrifty with the money. Um, so so that's, that's really good. But when we look at security, we see risk in a different way. Two, two men. So that means that because we're in the business of um, risk, making decisions based around risk, uh, we can make more accurate decisions when we come together to, to look at it. The other thing also is the collective intelligence of a group increases the more women um, you have in the group. It doesn't mean to say if you had an all-women group, we'd be super intelligent. That's not the case. When it's more balanced, that, in- that increases. Um, and, and then um, things like women will typically not default to a technical solution to solve a problem. They will dig deep and they'll look at the people aspect um, and also the processes and the, the technical controls and the regulations and things like that. So it's more kind of, you know, and I'm not, I don't mean to be discourteous to men and I'm saying typically these things happen, but there is a natural tendency for, for women in security to look more at those other sides sides to security. And of course, you know, we need people processes and, and technology to work um, together. So women have high EQ um, and social intelligence. So that can also help when you're dealing with people because that's what security is all about, people. Um, it's the nature of, of people. Um, so we typically tend to be more collaborative um, and also we can remain calm during times of turbulence. So which when we're going through crisis, a crisis or um, incidents and things like that, we need to, to be able to draw upon that. So those are kind of just elements that can help business um, to, you know, to move forward when, when they're looking at women. So better, better security, um, better innovation and all around happiness. And we know that if we have happy teams, and this doesn't just require on, on women, it, you know, big bulk of this comes down to leadership and culture. But if we have happy teams, then we all do better work. That's and right. So, well, I don't think anyone's yeah. going to say uh, no to all around happiness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, Gene, we got to take a commercial break. But hey, folks, if you're on social media, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. And you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family right away, and it's a lot of fun. So uh, we exchange a lot of information on there. There's a lot of views getting exchanged, and you get up to date uh, on all the episodes, too, on social media as well. So for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf 7 that's with the number 7, radio.com. I reminded our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. 
We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, award-winning entrepreneur and best-selling author, Mrs. Jane Franklin. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. 
Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, award-winning entrepreneur and best-selling author, Miss Jane Franklin. So, so Jane, right now in the industry, there's about 2.8 million cybersecurity professionals. I thought there was a lot more than that, but I think, you know, uh, when I look at reports out there, what I'm seeing now is 2.8. And the amount of uh, shortfall or jobs that are open right now range anywhere from 3.5 to 4, 4.2 million jobs so over the next couple of years. So there's a huge, huge gap there that we need to fill. Uh, so you're looking at maybe 145% global increase, you know, yeah. uh, here, which is astronomical, right? Do you feel it's possible to meet the demand without ser- getting very, very serious about attracting women into cybersecurity roles? Yes, I do. Absolutely. What I would like to see is um, when it comes to data, I want to see methodologies that companies have used to come up with those those figures because I'm always, I always question the data for a start because sometimes the collection of, of data isn't, there can be duplication of data. So say when they come up with figures like that, it could be they're actually duplicating and looking at the multiple job, same job, but it's it's um, spread out across the you know the the ether the internet multiple times and they're counting each time that they come across it. So I definitely want to question the data that is out there. And one of the reasons why I say that is because I know lots of cybersecurity or information security professionals who struggle to find work. So one of the things that I think that and that's at all positions. So. Coming into the industry is very, very difficult, whether you are a man or, or a woman. It's hard and it's tough, and it actually requires you to have stamina um, in order to, to keep with it so that you don't get fed up and you know just give up. Sometimes, um, in my experience, talking to people who are trying to get in, whether they're moving in from just having uh, a degree in computer science or some other related or non-related field, or whether they're kind of pivoting in after having a successful career in a different domain, whether it's IT or HR or accounting or teaching or law or whatever it is, um, it, it can sometimes take them two, two years to get in. So for me, I want to see the collection of data. I want to see accurate collection of data coupled with, with the methodologies that these companies have used. I want to see the locations and specifically what areas where we are short on talent. So is it pen testing? I know that it is. Um, but is it pen testing? Is it um, analysts? You know, is it, um, uh, I don't know, some other fields? 
and where is that in, in the world as well? So that will enable us to be very targeted about you know, the, the strategies that we implement in order to deal, deal with that. I know you think, from do you think this information is accurate that we're getting today? No, I question it. Okay. I question it. I really do. Um, some, of the, some of the studies that have been done, the data set isn't large enough anyway. Uh, so it will make good headline copy. You know, and everyone gets sensational about that. It, you know, it's almost like chicken licking the sky is falling down. It's just like, oh, my God, you know, we've got 145%, you know, deficit to fill, like, and 2 million to, to get by this year. And, and it's, um, I, yeah, so it can be a little bit sensational, a bit drama. For me, it's just like get out of the dra- this drama mode that we are living in, um, you know, and, and to actually work more from the engineering mindset, you know, which, which is let's, let's scrutinize the hell out of this data instead of being so accepting. I, this, to me, I cannot understand. You know, I came from an art background. My father is an engineer, so I've probably got that kind of in my blood. But I'm always suspicious, you know, so it's just like, let me see the data. Let me see how you've collected it. Let me see how big the data set is. Let me look at the countries that you've, you've gone to. Because a lot of these reports only look at certain countries, you know. So, so for me, that's kind of where, where we start. And then we need to do, I think, more research, um, good quality research with a substantial data set in order to get more accuracy. We need to ask better questions so that we can actually imp- uh, provide a, a strategy. I know. So, so I, I want to ask you a question because this yeah. has been on my mind and I've mentioned it in, in a few different episodes. So not too long ago, there were quotes out there that women represented about 11% yeah. of the industry. Yeah. And just late last year, ISC squared released its 2019 women's cybersecurity yeah. report, which revealed that women now just magically represent 24% of the industry. Yes. That's right. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, for, well, it's great. At first start, it's really good that they are doing this research. It really is. And they've done it for many, many years. But data can tell any story that you want. And this data is telling a story that they want it to tell. So, Which is that look, the number of women doubled in a few months. It's increasing, yes. Well, so more than not, doubled, right? They're not collecting it in the same manner. The data set hasn't been as big and it's not as extensive as, as it was in terms of global. So they've gone out to a few countries. I think the data set is 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 less than three thousand, whereas their previous studies, I think, I think the the one that I looked at when I was writing my book might have been up to nineteen thousand. So it was substantial. This one you had to be doing uh, from memory. I think twenty five percent of your job had to involve security. I'm, I'm really sure that was the case. So it's not. This wasn't a full time uh, position. So the, the way that they, they've collected it is different to how they've collected it before. So you really can't compare the two. You really can't. Um, so my feelings on that, whilst I do, I, I like to tell positive stories. I'm a positive, positive person. But we need to be really looking at how we're measuring this and, and the stories that we're telling. Yeah, do you Some, think enough people actually look at how the data is formulated and how the, you know, no, you know they they're don't? No, cons- right? they're too consuming. They're not engaging their brain half the time. They're right, too, they just read it. If they see it on the internet, it must be true. Yeah, so they just regurgitate it. They're compliant and they're just being led along. And this is one of the issues that we have in the industry. The co- 
compliance, you know, from, from people. It's just like question, engage your brain, you know, and, and, and push back, push back. And rather than being led along, it's like propaganda, isn't it? You know, they're just led along without engaging their brain. And if they want to believe that, then they believe it. And this, there are other reports out there, which, which um, I think it's, uh, Cybersecurity Ventures, you know, I think they said it was 15%. So when they measured uh, women in security, I think the percentage that they came up was 15%. So it ranges from 15 to 24% at the moment with how it's being collected. That's, that's Yeah, and that's a wide, wide berth. It's a wide berth. So um, what it is exactly, nobody really knows. So let's talk about pay inequity or equity for that matter. Yeah. The report also indicated that there were some pay inequities that were still persisting. It said that 17% of women globally reported annual salaries between 50 and 90,000 as compared to 29% yeah. uh, of men. And then 15% of women earn between 100 and 500,000. Why 20% of men earn at least, I mean, 20% of men earn between 100 and $500,000. I mean, those numbers are big, whether, you know, 15 and 20, they're both big numbers, yeah. but there's still, there's still that 5% discrepancy there. What are your thoughts on, on, on pay discrepancy? Um, well, again, with that report, I'm pretty sure it didn't even come to Europe. I think it was North America, might have been Asia, but I definitely don't think it came to Europe. The pay inequalities are still there. Some of the recruitment companies out there do measure measure pay. We've got one in the UK, Beecher Madden. They're also they also do business out in the in the US as well. They measure pay, um, and they've been doing it for about three three or four years, I think. Now, I think they said that the the pay equity was about the same, and this is from from memory. What I hear is that often what goes on with the negotiations around pay um, is that the ideal time to negotiate full pay for a woman is when she starts her new job. That's the best time uh, because then you're, you're starting off on the best foot. Um, typically what happens when you are negotiating for pay and promotions and things like that in an organization, um, you know, you're, you're got one over. <laughs> um, usually what happens is the employer uh, will negotiate on whether it's title or whether it's pay and often women have to decide upon the two do they take the title but not get the pay or is it the other way around and usually it's not necessarily the hiring manager as in their direct line who is being the difficult party in this it's usually hr so this is why the the um, leaders, you know, the cybersecurity leaders, have a hard time with HR, and this is why one of the title, one of the chapters in the book was HR is holding us back. So the the key is really to to as a leader and to ensuring that the equity um, improves um, is really to work better with HR and and deal deal with them. And, and to call them out. I mean, I had one uh, leader a few years ago, and when he found out he was taking on board someone from his organization, it happened to be a woman. When he found out what she was being paid, he told HR, she's on the rape, wrong, wrong pay grade, please increase it because she's coming into my team. They refused. 
And he said, if you do not do this, I will call it out as, as gender discrimination uh, because she's been paid the wrong pay for the last five years and they immediately increased it. Now, it's it all comes down to this, like, doing the right thing. You know, it does come down to like picking your battles and things like that, but it is about doing the right thing. When a woman finds out that she's not on the same pay grade as her male um, peer for doing the same wrong, she feels wronged, quite rightly so. You know, so, you know, equally it can work the other way where you have women being promoted, accelerated in order to meet targets and quotas and things like that. And the guys can look and, and feel a bit bent out of shape. You know, why is she getting it? I'm due that, da, da, da. You know, so it is, it is hard and really it comes down to doing the right thing, really removing, removing this, uh, the, the gender and just paying people what they want, yeah, so irrespective. I'm very, I'm very interested in your opinion on this. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're talking about how HR treats women um, generally and not only in pay, but otherwise. And, Typically, many of the HR representatives are women. Yes. And I find, at least in my experience, in corporate, that women are much tougher on women yes. than men. Yes. They can be. What, they can what, what is the deal with this? Well, <laughs> you know, there's exactly. I mean, there's a whole, there are many things that are going on. <laughs> As women, we're really complex. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're really complex. We don't even understand ourselves, you know, let alone getting a man to understand us. You know, I'm, I, I joke, but I am also serious. The, yes, um, some, some women are really tough on women and do believe that they need to be in order for women to prove themselves and see them kind of rise, rise through the ranks. Some women feel that because there are so few spots, then at the top, you know, if they're moving through leadership, then the kind of competitive streak can can kick in, which is wired into our DNA anyway as, as mammals, um, and they can look to pre- prevent that, um, to stop it, to block it. Um, a friend of mine, she's just written a book. It's just come out, actually. Um, it's called Raw, and she did a survey. I think she surveyed just under 300 people and she looked at bullies actually and it was all down to what she found was that 35% of women bully women so yeah it's 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 interesting it is interesting not all women are like that so a lot of people say about me I'm a woman's woman so for me it's about and I, I mentor lots of men as well as as, as women um, but you know it's about throwing the ladder down it's about helping up leaders make leaders so it's really about being that champion if you're so, a woman uh, being so I, I just want to interrupt for, yeah. are we training the right people because I know that men are getting dragged into these training sessions and there's no women in these training sessions I mean are, are, are we, are we training and mentoring the right people to solve this problem if 35% of women are bullying other women yeah, well, this is it. It doesn't. It doesn't discriminate. You know, bully, bullying doesn't discriminate. You know, so harassment doesn't discriminate. It's it's a case of we need to be implementing good practice. This comes down to culture. So making sure all our people know what what our standards are. You know what. Because otherwise it costs us so much because people, you know, we, we go to all of this extent, you know, through recruitment drives, et cetera, to hire people. Sometimes we develop them. If our culture isn't sound, we'll lose them either through burnout or sickness um, or that they'll just get so fed up and they'll leave. So there's such a cost to this toxic behavior that is going on. 
So, yeah, I mean, HR can be infuriating. HR also is very similar to, to us in a lot of respects. You know, their job is to protect the business. Um, our job is to protect the business. But what's happening is we're not, as, as leaders, we're not going out to make friends. We're not doing a good job of the stakeholder management. We're not um, making allies. We're not able to communicate effect, as effectively as we could and getting those win-win solutions. So it's really tough for those for the leaders. It's hugely tough, and I feel so much for, for them. But in order for us to improve the situation, we can empower ourselves, you know, whether that is through initiatives that the company are doing or external initiatives or training or coaching or mentoring that we take on ourselves so that we can empower ourselves as leaders to change these environments. Otherwise, we can go off and create our own companies and instill good uh, practice and behaviors and cultures that we know will attract good people and keep them or get them returning because often that's part of the journey, or at least you know um, spreading the word how how wonderful a company it is. So we've got that pipeline of talent ready to jump in to to work with us. So you're talking a little bit about interventions and how yeah. um, you know leaders who have access to the salaries of their teams need to speak up and, and lead the way yeah. in, in this respect. So what's working and what's not working in terms of fixing this problem? In terms of fixing, so what's the not working? Are we doing things that aren't working? Like, are we doing things yes. uh, that are just you know, this is a bad idea. We need to stop doing that and try yes. something else. Yes, lots of things. You know, if if I look at hiring, there's a lot of 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 mistakes that are going on there and that can be rectified. So you know, first of all, change begins in language. So sometimes the language is completely biased. So we need to understand our own bias so we can, we can get training, so we can understand the biases that, that we have. Harvard In the do, job descriptions? Yeah, absolutely. And there are tools, wow. there's technology that can support us with this as well, which is, which is fantastic. And it's not, it, doesn't cost, you know, it doesn't cost the earth either. So there are technologies that can go through. They can look at your job descriptions, whether or not you are... Uh, the language that you're using is more biased towards men or women. Ideally, what we want is, is gender neutral. So we're attracting the right people to come and work for us. And um, then you can have uh, kind of work, work-based uh, questions and you need structured interviews so that you are comparing, say, candidate or applicant A with um, applicant uh, B, so per question, so that you're going through those and you're actually giving them the questions, the type of scenarios that you would expect them to be able to know or deal with uh, when they were when they're doing the job. And if it's an entry level position, then you can look at other kind of questions that might reveal how they would approach something, you know, a task, it could be a challenge. Um, we need to be making our job descriptions as short as possible. We need to be understanding where uh, from a diversity perspective, looking at the whole diversity, so race, race ethnicity, age, gender, and, and so on, where people are falling off you know, in that um, hiring process. So if we are asking applicants to apply online, one that we're capturing that information and using the data and modifying our ways, our processes in accordance with what the data reveals. So there's technology that can help with that. And then, of course, if you don't want to invest in the technology, 
ignoring the the language side from the gen gender aspect because you would need to be educated in how to do that if you're not using technology you can look at processes so take for example panels um, many interview processes require a panel um, and if it is you know five people sitting on a panel interviewing a, uh, an applicant then whether that's at, at the top or, or so forth then really you've only got a data point or, of one because signals and messages can be shared unintentionally through body language um etc cetera, etc cetera, which will give clues out so structured interviews are really really important coming together and looking at processes and is really important and this this stop the blame mongering on women so what i hear a lot of and i call this out is you know, women don't want, you know, they just don't want to come into this industry or they're just, they're just not applying. So that, that means that you're putting that blame onto women. It's not women's fault. Women are ready. There are plenty of women out there who are keen to come and join security, whether that's cyber or information security. It, you have to look at your processes. Right. I want to get into this I want to go into a little bit of a deep dive on, on what you just said in the next segment. We've got to take a short break right now to hear from our sponsors, folks, but don't go away. We'll be right back with our special guest, award-winning entrepreneur and best-selling author, Miss Jane Franklin. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. 
in business. Staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, award-winning entrepreneur and best-selling author, Miss Jane Franklin. So, Jane, I want to pick up where we left off on the last segment. I want to talk about the problem itself and, and where the problem lies. What's the root cause analysis of this issue? If we look at women, is it with the gender or does it stem from schools? Is it, from the, is it uh, some kind of perception that the media gives with recruiters, even organizations as a whole? Where is the problem? What do we need to do? So it's a, it's a, it's a variety of things. So, you know, if we look at if we look at school, well, if we look at the kind of attraction part. So, how are we doing on that? My feeling is that we're doing a much better job. So, but we have we have we didn't start early enough. So it's almost as if the tide has come in really quick. So we were out paddling in in the you know by the seaside by the beach. And it's up to our ankles and it's all great. Everything's fine. And then all of a sudden, like, holy shit, you know, the water has come up and it's now up to, to our chests. And we're kind of panicking. It's just like, are we going to be able to swim? You know, well, what if we don't know how to swim? And it's kind of like that because things have happened. You know, the, the attack surface um, has exploded. And really, we should have seen this coming and because we didn't, we've been caught out with the amount of people and the different types of people that, that we need. So we have a very diverse work workforce. So in terms of what we do, we have it's very varied. And I think we are doing a much better job in terms of our out, outreach, in terms of going into the schools, in terms of going into the colleges and actually letting 
you know, the kids and the parents and the teachers and the career advisors know what it is that we do and just how much variety there is and the types of people that we need or there's a place for in our industry. So, and that's, that's happened really fast. You know, I would say it's probably happened in the last easily five, five years. It's quarters out though. So I do think we're doing a much better job of with our message and our, our outreach and we still need to continue that. And as our industry evolves, we need to you know, do, do a better job of that. This hiring bit, we've got to do a better, better job of and that's where I feel that, that we are now. And then when it comes to the retaining bit, then we've got to do a better job in terms of our leaderships, in terms of the cultures that we are creating because women are the canaries in the cage and I always say what's good for women is good for men. And if you've got women leaving your organization then or, or, or you're not able to attract them, then you've got to look at, at why. So women do see risk in a different different way to, to men. So you, you have to be aware that everything that is going on, we it's almost like we've got spy, those spider um, tingly um, things going on. It's just like we're constantly evaluating what, what is the risk because that is how, how we're wired. I know from the research that I've done and that was in the book that when it comes to attracting women, you have to roll out the welcome mat and you need to make them feel like they belong. But when you are, but there needs to be different um, kind of uh, tactics that are implemented, whether you are um, attracting women and hiring them or, re or retaining them. So, for example, when you are looking at teenagers, when you're going out to teenagers, there have been some studies that have been done that say um, that if you are presenting a, a female teenager with um, kind of uh, more than one competing stereotype, then that will be confusing. And a confused you know, confused buyer doesn't, doesn't buy. So if you have, say, for instance, a, a woman insecurity going out to speak to a teenager and she's really pretty, well, that can be a competing stereotype. It doesn't mean to say that you can't do that. It just means to say that you need to approach it with an engineering mindset, with a testing mindset, and be aware of that and test and measure to see what the results are, are going to be like. When you are hiring fresh talent, um, it's okay to use male role models. You don't have to have female role models to go out and speak to, to women, but only as long as you showcase shared values and beliefs and non-technical stereotypes. So that's, that's a, a place where you can use men. We have to be inspiring. So at the end of the day, you know, whoever we're going to to, to present to, to give our message to, we have to do a really good job. We have to pitch and be inspiring and charismatic and, and, and all of that. Um, and then, of course, when you're looking at retaining uh, women, then you need to look at um, each stage of, of the career. So not just looking and showcasing women at the height. We need the female role models there, but we need to look at each stage of the career so that women can see, um, oh, that, that's like me. I don't have to go that much further. They're at that stage in their career. I can achieve it. So keep some going. So we have to get, we have to do a better job of our messaging. We have to do a better job of our hiring processes and procedures. We have to do a better job of 
the culture and, re and retaining the talent. And we need to do a better job of this visibility. And this is why I do a big load of work around visibility, which includes voice. So how you are seen, how you are experienced, um, the messages that you put out there, how you're heard, and it incorporates everything from presence, you know, to um, communication um, and, and so forth. So, so I got to ask you a, a question about recruiting. Yeah. So if you go into a college class, if you go to, to any sort of a computer science class, let's say, and a computer science program, anything under the computer science program, usually, um, if you walk into the classroom, typically, at least in my experience, you'll find very few women in that class. It's almost like you walked into a fraternity room. Yeah. And you'll have maybe 10% of the class be, uh, be women. Now, I've seen quotas for corporations yeah. uh, at 50% to hire women, 50% coming into yeah. cybersecurity roles. Yeah. Now, what kind of challenge does that propose to a hiring manager when, and I'm just using computer science as yeah. an example, when yeah. there's 10% of the, the, the college yeah. recruitment pool is women and you have a quota of 50%. So my question to you is twofold. Yeah. Why is there only 10% of women in, 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 the, in, the, um, in the computer science classes, right? And what can we do about that? And secondly, should we have a set and enforced targets and quotas to bring more women into cybersecurity? Yeah, really good questions. Oh, Really good questions. Like, <laughs> it's oh, challenging. Big, really. big, big questions as well. It is a challenge. So certainly when for our industry, we're diverse. So we don't just need the the applicants who are coming through from the universities. So the, say if we're looking at women and you've got a 10% 10, 10 of them are going through um, colleges and, and universities, um, tertiary education. Yes, there's a small, there's a small pool there. One of the reasons for that is because it's not actually – and, and, I, and I'm generalizing with this, you know, because I'm talking about this from a world perspective, and I, I'm very conscious that I'm generalizing here, but by and large, it's not actually particularly enjoyable or current when it's, when, when people, particularly women, are, are going through, um, are going through. So they're battling with stereotypes. They're having to explain it sometimes to, to their parents or teachers. Sometimes those teachers are, are actually putting them off at vulnerable stages in their career. So for example, when my daughter wanted to study computer science when she was making her selection at 14, um, and she there was a competing one there. So do I do computer science or do I do Latin or something like that? Um, her teachers all pulled a face, except for one, her face when she said she was interested in computer science the one teacher actually it was her latin teacher who said if you want to do that i think it's really cool and this teacher was really cool it's like bizarre to think a latin teacher could be cool my latin teacher certainly wasn't um, but she was really cool and someone my daughter really respected and she said if you do this look this is this is technology it's the future Technology is the now, but I was really grateful for her saying that because my daughter listened to her and she did pick computer science. But, but this goes on. And that's why we have to, when we're going and doing our outreach um, initiatives and campaigns, we have to get to the teachers and we have to get to the parents as well, as well as the kids, as well as the, the girls, because we're competing and we, we're competing with other professions. So the engineers, the lawyers, the doctors, the teachers and so forth. So then when we come to teach it, when you look at how it's being taught, and I'm generalizing here, 
it's really quite dull and boring. So that can put a lot off. My daughter did it um, and, and got through and did her computer science at GCSE, uh, an exam that we have here in the UK, but didn't really want to continue with it. She is going to, she is going into engineering which is great. She's, she's going into a STEM field and that's what she wants to do, which is great. And I wouldn't mind whatever she wanted to do so long as she was happy. But she's, it really was very boring how it was taught. So that can happen. And then also what happens as you're going along, you have this fear of the bee effect where women might not, there's so much pressure on women um, to perform the, uh, usually from, from the, from themselves not from anyone else from themselves if they don't feel they're doing well then they can self-select out they can say it's not for me I'm not doing well I only got a B I didn't get an A I'm no good at this whereas the guys tend to be like yeah you know I can do this yeah I'll, I'll, I'll make it up I'll be better next time and and some some guys coast some guys and I've got two boys I've got two boys and a girl um, and they're all different <laughs> you know but um, you know sometimes they pull their you know pull uh, the, the gas out, you know, when they want to accelerate at the right time, and sometimes they can coast. But for, for women, there's more pressure, and there's a lot of pressure when it comes to exams um, that women have kind of traditionally inherited because they think that that is a way of proving that they are valuable and, and are worthy and can do, you know, the, the, the task or domain or subject. So we have all that going on when it comes to education, which will filter out um, you know, a lot of the, the people, particularly women coming through. And then if it's seen to be a male domain, then that can also, and I'll, I'll use another example with my daughter, actually, when she, she's doing engineering now at college, when she started engineering, just like with her computer science, she was, she was only three, there were only three girls. Now, when she did computer science, there were only three of them, full stop. But in her engineering class, there were three in amongst the rest were, rest were guys. They were picked upon and teased and all of that went on. Luckily, she's got two brothers, so she was okay and could cope with it. But if, if you're not, if you can't cope with a situation, an environment like that, sometimes it can be overbearing and sometimes you will think, do you know what? It's not for me. I'm not enjoying this. This isn't fun. I'm no good at it because I'm not getting a top mark. And get us self-select out. So you have that going on, you know, when we look at the pipeline coming through our educational system. I don't see that as being, I do see that as being a problem that we need to solve and, and fix in the countries where that, that is going on. India doesn't have that problem. They have a great pipeline of female talent who are taught from, from being little. Um, and some other countries are the same. But then when we look at how do we solve this commercially um, as as an industry, then we can train. So we can look for skills um, that, that complement. Um, so if we, depending on the skills that we need. So if we're looking at um, auditors, you know, we can pull out to accounting or we could pull out to, to IT because there's a lot of auditing that, that goes on there or program management and things like that. There are those skills around and, and women who can pivot, women who think that they need to go off and do a degree in order to get qualified and spend three years extra doing that and at a cost when actually with the right marrying up, 
they could come in and actually be trained up within months and be of use to us now. So not causing us to have this talent shortage, not causing us to have a talent shortage in regard to women, not causing us to be exposed. Right, right. So what about the, what about the, the quotas? What, what, what are we, are we they, doing the right thing by setting these quotas and enforcing these quotas and how difficult is it making? Quotas are tricky. So right. yes, yes and and no, <laughs> and as always, you need to measure. So a commitment is great. If you don't have a commitment, what, what, get, what gets measured improves. You do need a commitment. So the companies that are doing well do have a commitment. You know, I, I think of Accenture, they've got a 50-50 commitment by the year, uh, in the next few years, I can't remember specifically the year, in the next few, few years. Um, they're doing really well. So they've got that, that quota and they're very active and invested in, in what they're doing to pull in talent with their messages and, and how they're supporting women, how they're setting women up who come in um, to succeed. Because it's not just a case of hitting those quotas. Oh, we've got a woman in, tick the box. That satisfies HR usually uh, or inclusion and diversity to hit those quotas. But sometimes the women come in and they are not set up to succeed, which creates problems for hiring managers, it creates problems for the team because then they just see um, a minority coming in and, and then kind of tarnish them with, you know, women are rubbish, there you go, another woman has come in who's not up to the job, she's only been brought in because she's meeting a quota. Um, you, so you do have to have the, the commitment that does help. You do have to have a com commitment when it comes to recruiting because what research has found is that when you get more women in front of hiring managers at the interview stage, then the numbers of women who come on board to your team increases. So you do have to have the commitment, but it has to be more than just ticking a box and meeting a quota. You have to set them up for success and you have to know exactly what type of talent you need. And also you have to operate within the law as well. So what I see is sometimes um, hiring managers say, yeah, I want to get more women into my team for all the right reasons. And that's, that's um, very noble. And it's, it's a good, it's great to, to see that commitment. But what, say in the UK, what we have is we have, you know, you, you can't do that. You can't say that. And I know it goes on. You can't because it has to be fair. The only time you can make a decision to hire a woman in preference to, to a man is when you have a woman and a man at the same point. So you can't decide. It's then over to you. If you feel that you have a minority and you want to change that minority, but you've got two applicants who are both equally capable, at that point you can be biased and you can choose the minority in preference. But otherwise you can't. And it, it does, this does go on and invariably I hear it. But all that does is alienate alienate men men from women and causes a rift and makes the men feel very threatened. So it is, it's complex and it's not easy. We do need quotas, but we have to be working with quotas and targets in the right way, as opposed to just ticking the box. Ticking the box just makes things 10 times as bad. All right, Jane. Thanks so much for coming on with us. This has been really fascinating. I mean, you say some really interesting things. You got me thinking, and I'm sure our audience is saying the same thing. I'd love to have you back someday, maybe on some panels as well. I love that. That would be great. 
All right, great. It's time to go, folks. But before we do, we remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.